12 to 17. As we're looking at the new test, the new uh, picture of the new um, idea of what does it mean to have fellowship with the Lord? What does it mean to know that you know God? And, and I hope that you have that today, that assurance. Uh, John gives us the assurance of what we're supposed to have, what our life's supposed to look like. And, and, and if anything, that the Christian is supposed to be one who is assured. Assured of what Christ has done, assured of who Christ is, and assured of what he's done for us, that we are changed, and that we're saved and sealed by him and, and all that he's done for us. Our, our new position and, and how we work that out practically in our daily life. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on uh, this passage. I want to read verse 12 down through 17. But the, the whole issue of this passage is that this new test is to basically love the word and not the world. To love the word and not the world. Let's read here verse number 12. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We find some very familiar verses here, but we're going to look this morning, first of all, and, and probably all that we're going to get to today is verses 12 to 14. These key truths to know. And you're going to see here in just a moment that he writes, and he's going to be giving certain key truths, and he writes to the fathers and young men and little children. And does that mean he's not talking to you, ladies? No, it, it means he is talking to you ladies as well. But what we're going to see is that he's giving these different age groups and specific uh, people and stages of our spiritual life, if you will, that we're always growing in maturity from little children to young men and to, uh, you know, older uh, men or to fathers, to those who are reproducing spiritually speaking. You and I are called ultimately not to make converts, but to make disciples. That's the key difference. I, I believe that one of the grave issues of the church over the past 60 years, and I'm talking about churches like ours, is that we have been so focused on making converts based upon numbers and not making disciples. That's the reason why we have so many dropout rates of people who are younger, and we say, well, they're just not like we were. Well, y'all might have been disciples. They, they haven't been. Y'all knew what it was like to not have television technology. Y'all sat by the fireplace on the front porch and read Bibles and sang hymns together and, and had song services and family worship and time together. Y'all knew what it was meant to be disciples. Unfortunately, for the past several generations, we have missed discipleship. And so we have a group of people who are unassured of their salvation. They don't really know the Bible. They don't really know God. And many of them truly aren't even saved to begin with. And so as John is writing this, he is writing to these different groups to show that if you are truly saved, you will go from being a little child to maturing. Every Christian until the day you die and leave this world is to be maturing. If you think well, I've been in Christ for this long, so I, I think I'm pretty good to go here, then you have no idea whatsoever. You're, you're barely at the basic bottom steps if you think you've arrived. No one here has arrived yet. I've not arrived yet. None of us are all that in a bag of chips. We're, we're not even crumbs at the bottom of the bag. Uh, we, we are just uh, passing through this world, but we are to always, as we're passing through, to not stay babes. If we're still stuck on the milk, we never get to the meat and bread and potatoes, the good stuff, right? 
No one goes to Texas Roadhouse and orders just a glass of warm milk, right? No. What do you go there for? You go there so you can eat eight baskets of rolls, your steak, and, and see about getting dessert to take home, right? That's what you do. Why? Because you want the good stuff. Now you say, well, at, there's a point in time in our life where we do need the milk because that's all, all we can handle. However, if you have been saved for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, even I'd say two, three, four, five, six years, and all you can handle is the milk and anything else upsets your stomach, then you have got to start growing right now. I believe what the Lord would say to you right now is something that we don't like to hear, and it certainly has a bad connotation, but grow up. That's what we need. We need grown-up Christians. Why? Because it's grown-ups that make other Christians, that make disciples to then one day become grown-ups so that they would do the same thing. Now, as we go through here, um, where that came from, I don't know. But here we go. Let's get verse 12. I ran to you, little children. Now, the, he says the truth here. And as we're going to see, the word little children is used throughout this passage and throughout the book that we've seen several times. It shows his endearment for the people. It shows the stage of life that they're in uh, spiritually at some point, as well as just the closest. And the fact that John at this point is well up in years. I'm talking he's in his 80s. Uh, as he's writing this, he's towards the end of his life. He's certainly no spring chicken. He's not at the beginning of his Christian walk. He literally walked with the Lord. And so he knows what it means uh, to, to live this Christian life and walk. But he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The first truth to know if you are a Christian is the very basic building block of salvation, of your position in Christ, and it is that you are forgiven. Thank you. All right, someone got it. You are forgiven. I think somewhere along the way of following Christ, we lose the, the, the beauty of salvation, the fact that we are forgiven. Not that you know, we're forgiven every time we go to church or we're forgiven as long as we're reading our Bible, but that we are forgiven, forgiven. Those who have repented and believed the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, because outside of that message, outside of putting your faith in that, uh, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope. And so only through that is there forgiveness. It says to believe that from, that has been preached from the beginning are forgiven past, present, and future. Now, we see the word here, F-E-M-A, which is are forgiven, that phrase. It is meaning to forgive, to be omitted, and I love this one, to cancel a debt. There was a debt that you could not pay. Now, what we'd love to tell all of those people that we might owe debt to, mortgage companies, I don't know what else, you know, Jesus paid it all, right? And so we'd love to tell them that, but I don't quite work. But when we look at our salvation, Jesus has paid it all, paid in full. When Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is a cry of saying that it has been paid for. The, the price has been paid. The satisfaction of God's wrath has been met. And it has not been met because you died or you did good works, or you're a good person, but it's rather because God in the flesh bore your sins, bore the wrath of God, and died and was slain upon that tree for you and I, and that he would rise again victorious over hell, death, and the grave to offer us eternal life, to offer us forgiveness, that our debt has been canceled, that we are a forgiven people. This becomes our status and our position. If you can say that you're anything, Right? You might be able to say, well, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a this, or I'm a that. At the end of the day, what you can say is, in the eyes of God, I am forgiven. 
What a great truth this is to chew on and to dwell on, especially the longer that we live and walk with the Lord. As we live and walk with the Lord, our sin does not stop. Our flesh does not stop fighting us. The world does not stop luring us. And the devil does not stop whispering lies to us and trying to deceive us. But what we find is that we continue to sin. We continue to have the struggle and the fight. So what can we do to help us win that fight? Well, as we talked about in spiritual warfare to gird ourselves up with truth, the truth is this. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven. Now, you know this, especially if you walk with the Lord. That gives us, it does not give us license to go and sin as we please or live our lives as we want to, but rather it gives us the status that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We find that salvation, at the moment of salvation, we are declared forgiven. We are not guilty. Uh, we all used to be guilty. We used to be the ones who were under God's wrath. And now we've been translated from darkness to, to light. And we uh, see this great truth. And, and I wanted to give you this as well. I just skipped over it. I just noticed it is in the perfect tense. Now, uh, I'm not an English major. I didn't learn things about the English language, honestly, until I took Greek. Um, but the, the perfect tense is something that is of interest here. It really helps to drive home what this word are forgiven means. It is a tense signifying a past action with a continuing effect that does not change. All right? So when we say at the cross of Christ, there at Calvary, and when you and I are born again, right, adopting the family of God, that we are saved or we are forgiven. So what does that mean? We're forgiven just in that moment? Or rather, what it means is that we're forgiven in that moment for everything that we used to do and used to be and all that used to be against us. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that there was a handwriting of ordinance that he had nailed to the cross, right? We, we bear it no more. And so we not are only forgiven by everything in our past and who we used to be and do, but we're forgiven in that moment in our present as we walk and even as we stumble and even as we sin in our flesh, then we are also forgiven for all of our future. It becomes who we are. At the root of every true believer is someone who in the eyes of God is forgiven. What a great truth this is, to be not guilty before God. We find the reason why that we're forgiven here, we see this state of forgiveness in, in 1 John 1, 9, this continual confession that we see that even though we are forgiven people, we still ask the Lord for forgiveness. And why is that? It's because we are ever struggling and battling with sin in our flesh. And then we find over in 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, and, and uh, as Dr. Bowman would say, we say it's smooth, right? We say propitiation, not propitiation like them Bob Jones guys. That's what he used to say. If you know Bob Jones, you'll get it. If not, then don't worry about it. Uh, but he says he is the propitiation for our sins. That means to satisfy the wrath of God. We don't understand the wrath of God because you and I haven't had to experience it, and you and I can't even fathom what Calvary looked like. Uh, we, we can try to imagine the, the hours of absolute darkness. And it wasn't just a darkness like we cut off the lights here or a cloudy day. It was darkness like described in the plagues in Egypt during the book of Exodus that is a felt darkness. It's like you could grab it and hold it. It's, it's an absolute, utter, pitch black dark that you can feel that oppresses you. It's even the same darkness that is described earlier on in this chapter with those who walk in darkness, uh, those who are stumbling in darkness, those who are blinded, 
by darkness. <clears throat> he says this, that, that we are moving through here. We see that we have gone from that darkness and we see the uh, Calvary. We don't understand the, the depth of the darkness, nor do we understand the brutality of the crucifixion process, let alone the fact of what's actually happening spiritually there. That every weight of your sin and mine is placed upon Jesus. That the one who is holy from the foundations of the world, who, who is eternal, who is perfect and pure, and, and who upheld every aspect of the law and was completely uh, uh, not guilty, uh, the opposite of what we were, is then declared as if he is guilty. He who knew no sin doesn't just you know, take on sin, but becomes it itself. If we can understand that, then we can understand the weight of what it means that He has satisfied the wrath of God against us. That He is our propitiation and advocate for all eternity, for all sins. That is who we are as a forgiven people. Then we find that we are forgiven, not because of what we do, but rather for His name's sake. I love that add-on that John includes here. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. What is His name? His name is Jesus. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, literally means Savior, Redeemer, the Messiah, the, the Promised One. Right? There was plenty of people, mind you, by the way, Jesus was not the only one named Jesus at this time. There were plenty of others, Jesus, but he had the title of Jesus, the Christ. Why? Because he was the Christ, the anointed of God. There was even those in the Old Testament, and even today, who have the name Joshua, which others would say Yeshua. It is the same that would be later known as Jesus. It is that of the Savior. Why? Because ever since sin comes into the world, mankind had been promised by God a redemption, a redeemer, a Messiah, a Savior. Someone to rescue them is what the word literally means. And it is that they are longing and looking forward to that day. And that day has come. Jesus has come. The name of Jesus is an important point of John's thought. Jesus' name represents his divine identity and power. We find that what is in a name, a name is incredibly important, right? Your name holds, it should hold and used to hold more so than it does today, your character, your abilities, your thought process, your, your everything. It, it, was, it was who you were. Your name is important. To have a good name is important. To have a bad name is also equally as as the thing, right? We see Jesus' name, though, as Acts 4.12 tells us, that neither is there salvation any of, uh, in any other, for there is none other's uh, name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of God throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is revealing His character, attributes, will, word, and work in all things. What God does, He does so for His name's sake. So why did God save you today? If you're saved today, did he save you because he saw something good in you? No, because when he looked at you, you were nothing but a worm, nothing but dirt, nothing but vile, disgusting, even uh, enough to make him sick to his stomach over your sinfulness, over your unholiness. So what was in you that saved? Nothing was in us except for sin. So why does God save a sinner? Not because there's anything good in the sinner, but because all that is in God is good. It is for his name's sake and his name's sake alone that he does so. His name is wonderful. His name demonstrates his character, his power, his authority. Romans 11.36 tells us this, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
we find here that everything is by him, from him, through him, to it is all because of the Lord that we're saved, that we are forgiven. It's for his name's sake. Therefore, we are now representatives of his name. How are we representing his name? Are we carrying his name well? Are we representing now we often care more, unfortunately, about our namesake on the outside of our church building than we do the name of Christ? We have to be careful there. We, we should certainly remember who we represent local as a local assembly, but even more so, we are representing the name of Jesus, the only name that man must hear in order to be saved and trust in. That is far more important than any other name, whether it's a church sign or a pastor's name or your name or anybody's name. It is Christ and Christ alone. We get to verse 13. He says, I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I want to begin here. You have known him. Fathers, right? He says, John here, and I've got written down for you to help you understand this. John is using phrases in the passage, fathers, children, young men, etc., to know the distinguished ages within the church, as well as periods of growth in the life stages of believers, and to lump these truths for each group as one body of Christ. Why? Because each one of these groups of people will experience the same things as you grow older. You experience the same sins, the same lust of the flesh, and lust of the eyes and pride of life. You experience the same battles and circumstances. That's why this, your testimony might be different from someone else's testimony, but I would say this, your life story is different, but not your testimony. Your testimony is the same as the next person next to you. You go, well, that's not the case. I've never heard that before. Well, you're hearing it today. Your testimony is this. You were lost, and now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. Now, anyone in here who is saved, do you have a different testimony? No. Now, you've got maybe different ways through life that God brought you out of things, or maybe God kept you from other things, because there's plenty of us who have a testimony of getting saved at an early age in a Christian home or whatever it might be, right? And we go, well, how is that testimony the same? Because it took the same blood of Jesus, took the same amount of blood, took the same amount of grace, it took the same everything, right? There was none where God's, oh, I, I got to pour a little bit more on this one over here, or I got to give a little more of this, or that. It was the same. Why? Because all of us were under the wrath. All of us were unforgiving. Now, he said, we show here that each believer begins their journey and must continuously grow, not just in age, but in faith in Christ. If your growth in Christ is only measured by how many years you've been saved or how many years you've been a church member or a deacon or a teacher or this or that, then that's not real growth. Growth is something that only happens through real fruit, through the Holy Spirit of God in your life by abiding in Him. Growth is not going, well, I've been, you know, uh, I'm grown up now because I'm X amount of years. You know plenty of grown-ups who are really like kids, don't we? Right? We know people who are plenty who have plenty of age on them but are still yet very immature in the way that they live their life. So we see that it is much deeper than just how long you've been around or how long you've known God. We find then, he says, I have written you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. Who is from the beginning? Jesus is from the beginning. The beginning clearly refers to the one who has been from the beginning and is the source of all things. We find him in Genesis 1.1. We find that in John 1.1, and we find it in 1 John 1.1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, the word of life, the logos, the divine revelation of God, the eternal one, Jesus the Christ, the second person of the triune God, who is thrice holy, holy, holy. He is the one who is from the beginning. He is the cause of the beginning. 
He is the one who ushers in the beginning. And he is the one who brings in the beginning to your life. Why? Because when we have passed from death unto life, we are now unforgiven to forgiven. Is that not or is it, is it or is it not a new beginning? It absolutely is. It is a new beginning of your life. And we find here that he says him, beginning him. Him, Jesus, certainly being referenced here, it is Jesus that the believers have both known and have been known by. There is fellowship and relationship with and through Christ and Christ alone. 1 John 1, 7 tells us, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Does it get any gooder than that? I don't think so. Why? Because we've known the Lord and he has known us and we are saved not by our merit, but by his merits. And we have a united body, a local assembly, as well as the universal body of Christ through his shed blood. And, and it's, it, it shows us there's such a depth that the Lord does for us. He says, you've known him. And then he says, I ran to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Overcome the wicked one. Who in the world is the wicked one? That's right. Yeah, there you go. Hey, we got one answer today. <laughs> Everybody else knew thought it was a trick question. That's right, Satan is the devil. You know who the wicked one is. Now, he might have had the answer right. The rest of y'all might have been thinking about somebody else in here. I don't know. Right? Well, that's not the case if that was what, what you were thinking. The wicked one, Satan himself, the very first to, uh, of the fallen, the one who would, as a dragon, gather up a third with him as, the, as he falls and is cast down. We know that this wicked one, he says that you've conquered him. You've won over him. You've won victory over him. Now, you and I might face some losses. But it should certainly be said of the Christian that we have more gains than losses, more wins than losses. Why? Because of that same precious blood of Christ. Because ultimately, in the spiritual battle and warfare, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That's you today. You are called the conqueror. You are called the forgiven one. You are called the one who has overcome the wicked one. What a, what a privilege. What a thought to know that there is the ability to overcome not because of who we are not because of what we've done but we overcome by the blood of the lamb only through him notice that when we sing songs we sing victory in jesus not victory in me keeping my salvation not victory in me feeling like i'm saved not victory in me trying real hard but victory in jesus why because there's not victory in self there's only victory in Christ. That's why we trust Him. That's why we rely on Him. That's why we depend upon Him. It all belongs to Him. Christ has overcome at Calvary, at that empty tomb. Christ has overcome for all of eternity. Why? Because He is God, not Satan. Christ has overcome, and He's overcome on our behalf. John shows that every believer has an enemy who is against him. Who's against you? The wicked one. He's certainly against you. Why? Because he knows his fate is sealed. But he would certainly love to take everyone that he can. He would certainly love to, uh, if anything, right? If we talk about those, who does the devil like to bother? We, I would say this, doesn't care as much nearly about the lost because they're already blinded. He certainly likes to attack and to discourage and to go after those who know the Lord and have an assurance. Why? Because he wants to cause them to doubt. He wants to tell them that they're, they've done too much wrong or they've gone too far they've done this or that or whatever they've done 
you know something? If we base our salvation or being kept saved by based on what we've done, we'd never have it to begin with. We'd never keep it to begin with. But if we look and we say it is under the blood of Jesus and look at what Christ has done, I might have done this, but Jesus said it is finished. The Father says I'm forgiven in Christ. If that's who I am, I'm not what you accuse me of anymore. I'm not what you accuse me to be. Uh, That's not who I am. John emphasizes well that those in Christ are overcomers, not because of us or our name, but how are we overcomers? By His and for His namesake. We're overcomers through His name, by His name, and for His name. We overcome, why? And we go through these battles. Why? Not so God would sit up there and play whack-a-mole with us. That's not what God's doing. What is God doing through these things? These light afflictions of our life, these light battles in comparison to glory, in comparison to eternity, they are building and doing a great work in us to make us more Christ-like and as well, so that you and I would be pictures and images of God's glory and the fact that He has overcome. Pictures of His character and of His name. That we would point to the cross uh, so that you and I would certainly win our battles, but ultimately so that way others who are in darkness would see the light of the gospel and would be changed by it, would be saved by it. One commentator writes, putting all this together, we can say that the author understands believers' victory over the evil one to be achieved because God himself abides in them. He is greater than the evil one. And his son, Jesus Christ, protects them And as a result, they are able to overcome the evil one through their faith in God. As we talked about that shield of faith, notice as we talked about that shield of faith quenches every and all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. There's not a single thing that the devil can throw your way that you do not have the equipment to handle. Not by your strength, but by abiding and trusting in Christ. The devil will come and he'll keep coming, but guess what? We have that full armor. We have this full assurance as John is talking about that we are forgiven. And if you can chew on that like, like some double bubble bubble gum to know that you are saved and forgiven, I mean, that stuff, it'll last you forever. It'll last a lifetime to know that I am not who the devil says that I am. I'm not who I sometimes feel that I am, but I am who God says that I am and I am forgiven. I am an overcomer. One day, we will overcome, ultimately, won't we? But we're still yet to be called overcomers in this life. You're not meant to keep losing. You're not meant to be, you know, taking these losses. We're meant to be overcomers. Why? Because that's who we're called. He says, because you've overcome the wicked one, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. You have known the Father. The word here that's used for little children, there's been several terms that have been used. The word technia, which is also translated as children at times, has more of an emphasis on a child's relationship of dependence on a parent, while paideia has more of an emphasis on a child's immaturity and need for instruction. The word here is is paideia used. It is that we are in need of this instruction, that we have known the Father, and, and we are instructed in knowing Him. We have been instructed in growing in the fact that we are forgiven, we are known by Him and we do know Him. And as well, that we are adopted by Him. We are not who we used to be. We belong to a new family. We have a new father. We have a new home. We have a new... Everything is new. The sad thing, though, in our Christian life is that everything that is supposed to be so new and fresh and vibrant in our life is that the longer that we walk with the Lord, sometimes it grows dull. It's like we've been given this, 
It's like, it's like a, a child who receives a pair of brand new white Converse sneakers, right? Now, how long are they going to stay white? Not too long. Now, there's some kids who are real protective and they'll wear a bubble wrap so no one gets dirt on their shoes or no scuff marks or anything. But those white shoes, you want to keep white, don't you? But what happens, though, is the longer we walk in them, it seems to grow a little dull. Even if they don't get but so dirty, it kind of just loses its shine a little bit. What happens, though, is you and I walk in this world, we, we get dirty, we, we don't confess our sin, and we don't return to the Lord as we're supposed to, or we lose hope, or we lose faith, or we get a couple of battles lost, and we forget who we are in Christ, and we forget that we have white shoes, ultimately, in Christ that will always stay white. But we somehow let the image become dull to us, and we forget who we are and who has given us this gift of salvation, and we become discouraged in the trials and the battles and the sins that we face, and then we somehow just kind of just go, woe is me, everything's so bad in this world, and you know something, I'm ready to go to heaven too, but you know something, while we're on this earth, we're called to live like, like we're going there, but we're called to live as overcomers right now. One day we will fully and finally overcome all things through Christ and Christ alone, but we're called to do so now, today, today, today. He says, we've overcome the wicked one and the little children that you've known the Father. The word know here. We know God as our Father because He knows us as His sons and daughters. John chapter 14, verse 7, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know Him and have seen Him. How do we know God the Father? Because we know Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit indwells and abides in us and strengthens us and points us to Christ the Son who points us and takes us to the throne room of the Father. We see how it's a perfect work of our triune God who is ever at work on our behalf for our good and His glory. What a God that we serve to do such a thing. To know Christ the Son is to know God the Father because of the work of God the Spirit in our life through His Word. And then he says, in verse 14, I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. We've already discussed this. He's already talked about that. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. You are strong and overcome. Our strength is found not in what we bring to God, but the fact that he brings us to himself. Our strength is not found in what we tithe, what we do, where we sit, how loud we sing. Our strength is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. He is our strength. Is the believer's strength and victories come simply from abiding in the Word of God, in the Word of God abiding in us. What commentator writes here about this, Cruz, he writes, there are then... Two reasons why the author says the young men have overcome the evil one. But in fact, the two are one. They have overcome the evil one because they are strong, and they are strong because the Word of God lives in them. The Word of God abideth in you. This means a couple of things. One, we put our trust in the Word of life, as we've talked about 1 John 1, 1, who is from the beginning, that is the Word of God, God, Jesus Christ himself. What it means as well that as we walk in this life, that we don't just carry our Bibles, but that we are walking Bibles ourselves. That we know God's Word and that we are in God's Word and that it is in us. That it's in us. That is enough to be strong. 
Why? Because you can draw your strength from, and trust me, I've got many books. I, I, lo- I love to read. I, I love many different authors and different styles and types of books and all this stuff. But guess what? Some of them have encouraged me. Some of them have convicted me. But ultimately, where I draw strength is not from what the author says, but how he points to Christ the Word. Our strength is found here. Far too many believers are weak in their walk because they're weak in knowing the Word. I've got to stop here because I've got a time and that's the portion and then I'm going to get into my message for 10.30 and everybody else who ain't here is going to miss it. So we don't want that. Today I want to encourage you this. To chew on those truths found in 12 to 14. Today, today, if you know Christ today, today if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. If you're discouraged, chew on the fact that you're forgiven. Christ loves you in your sin and died for you and has forgiven you, and you're no longer unforgiven or under His wrath, but you are a forgiven soul for past, present, and future forevermore. It's who you are. Secondly, dwell on the fact that we are not just forgiven, but we're forgiven for His name's sake. That it is the work of God in our life. That it is a work and act of His grace for His glory and for our good. And dwell on the fact that because of our forgiven state, because of what Christ has done, because of for His name's sake, and because we know Him, that we have overcome the wicked one. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. That's what we're called to do. Yet many of us have let the lies of the devil, our own lustful flesh and eyes, tell us that we're the opposite of what God tells us. Who would you think is telling you the truth? The father of lies, the devil? Or God, who gave us his word and saved us for his name's sake? Trust in the word of God, abide in it, and find your strength today. And lift up your head, praise the Lord, and keep pressing forward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time once again. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. I pray, God, that you would help us, guide us, direct us. Lord, help us take these truths and to chew on them, to put them and apply them to our hearts, Lord, that it would be through the work of your spirit that we would be changed. God, I pray that you would prepare us for this morning, Lord, that every song that would be sung would, would just lift our, uh, up a, a sweet-smelling savor and sacrifice to you, God, uh, as we sing from our whole hearts, Lord. Help us to not care about what anyone else hears or thinks, but just to sing to you, God, that you are our audience today. No one else is. Lord, we're here for you and because of you and, and through you. And, and, and all of this is for you today, God. Help it to be. Lord, I pray that you would help each one that's here, Lord, that we would receive what we need from your word. And God, that you would do what only you are able, Lord, through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll take a pause for the calls. And any men that want to pray for the service, gather right over here in this Sunday school room.